Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're spotlighting the Scholastic Summer Reading Program with some of our favorite authors. We'll hear from Christina Suntornvat, Kwame Mbalia, Tracy West, and Lauren Tarshish. They'll tell us about the titles they'll be sharing with young readers this summer and why now is the perfect time to grab a book and get lost in a reading adventure. Later, I'll talk with Shane Garver, the Associate Vice President of Rural Education at Save the Children. He'll explain the nonprofit's crucial role in getting books into the hands of children in rural America. To learn how participants in the Scholastic Summer Reading Program can be part of that mission and unlock a donation of 100,000 books, go to scholastic.com podcast. Now, here is author Christina Suntornvat. Hi, Christina. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. We're very excited to have you on our summer reading episode. First, tell us about the book you'll be sharing with young readers this summer or one of the books. So I write a series that's called Diary of an Ice Princess. This is about a young princess named Lena who has this fantastic life. She lives in a castle in the clouds and all of her family is royalty and they all have powers over wind and weather. But really the thing that Lena wants is to be just a regular kid going to a normal school on the ground. So all of her adventures are about trying to control her powers and keep it a secret that she's an ice princess versus embracing who she is and embracing her powers. So the book I'm going to read from is the third book in the series. It's called On Thin Ice. And in this book, Lena's cousin, who is Jack Frost, comes to stay with her. So Lena and Jack get into lots of conflicts and have to learn how to live together. (laughs) So this chapter is called Putting on a Snow. Diary, when it comes to winter magic, Cousin Jack is not just okay. He's incredible. We all sat at the table after dinner while he showed us some of the things he could do. Jack's magic is so different from mine. Everything he made was so delicate and pretty. I never even knew that winter magic could look like that. You have to use the nature of snow and ice to your advantage, Jack explained. Every snowflake has its own crystal pattern. No two snowflakes are alike. Of course, I know that already, Diary. It's not like I was born snowing yesterday, but I didn't say anything. Jack leaned toward the vase of snowbells and pointed to one of the blossoms. Focus your magic on just one snowflake and allow your magic to flow out from there, building crystal by crystal. Jack held his finger over a flower. Suddenly, a tiny fleck of frost appeared on the petal. The frost spread slowly over the snowbell until the entire blossom was covered in delicate, icy lace. You try. I leaned forward. A single snowflake, I told myself. 
a pattern of frost formed on one of the flowers. That wasn't so hard, but then I felt the ice crystals getting out of control. The pretty frost thickened, and in no time, the entire bouquet of snowbells was encased in a thick cocoon of solid ice. Don't get discouraged, Lena, said Jack. When you're just starting out, it's natural to make simple mistakes. <clears throat> I'm not just starting out, Diary. I've been using winter heart magic for months now. Diary, I know this is weird, but I wish Jack was the burp on your pillow sort of cousin because it turns out the perfect in every way sort of cousin is even more annoying. Beautiful, Christina. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is great. What do you hear from your young fans? What do they like most reading about Lena and her adventures? I think that they like that things usually get really out of hand and chaotic. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> that's, the, that's the fun part. She's a kid, so she's just kind of learning. She's learning what her limits are and she's learning what she can do. And Lena usually has big ideas of how things are going to go. And it almost never goes to plan. So her ice magic gets out of control and she freezes the boy's bathroom or, you know, she accidentally turns a kid's feet, you know, like freezes them in ice where he can't move. And it's just really fun to think about those kinds of disasters that she's going to get into. And I think that kids really like seeing that too. This sounds like a great summer read, <laughs> this book and this series. What benefits do you think kids derive from reading over the summer, especially a book that they choose for themselves? Oh, my gosh. I think that's the best part of summer reading is it's just kind of like pressures off. You can pick whatever you want. It might not be something that you'd normally read in school. It might not be something that is at your quote reading level. Like it might be something that is, you know, you used to love last year that you want to read again, or something that you, your older sibling has been reading and you want to give it a try. So it's just really a time to like let loose and be free with reading. I think during the summer for me, that's really when I learn to become a reader, like just for myself, just for pleasure. It wasn't tied to anything else. It wasn't tied to any expectations. The books I read were just for me. Do you have a favorite memory from childhood from reading over the summer? Yes. So every summer I would go stay with my grandparents for a long time. Like we would say my mom and I would stay there for like a month. And so her parents lived in East Texas and they lived in a really small town. So this town had a tiny little post office and a tiny little grocery store. And that was it. And so you know, there wasn't a library that was really close. So I would borrow books from my hometown or bring books that I had collected and I would pack a whole bag of crayons, my art supplies, my favorite loveys, my stuffies, and then pack all my books too. And th those were my treasures. And I would just go through those and my cousins would come over and share them. And so my <laughs> memories of the summer are eating blackberries that my grandparents would grow on their farm and then just have like a big bowl of blackberries and a book and just nothing else to do. And it was pretty, pretty good. 
<laughs> that sounds like Nirvana. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> Now, here is author Kwame Mbalia. Hi, Kwame. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted you're here. So tell us about the book or one of the books you'll be sharing with young readers this summer. I am excited to share The Last Gate of the Emperor, the sequel called The Royal Trials. It actually releases this summer, July 19th. Super excited about it. We get to return to Axum, to outer space, with food, video games, and snarky robots, which are three of my favorite things in the world. So I'm really, really happy to share this. Prince Joel and I co-wrote this book, so it'll be out July 19th. Oh, what great news. What was the genesis for the series? Well, it's, it's really a culmination of both uh, Yoel and I wanting to tell stories that reflect an Africa of the future, an Africa diaspora of the future, while incorporating some of our favorite things. For me, again, that's eating and playing video games. And so anytime I can share that with young readers around the world, that's something that um, I take I take great joy in. What do you hope kids will take away from your series? Really just an enjoyment of reading, right? Like I, I want young readers, I want all readers actually to be able to pick up this book and just get whisked off onto another adventure, light speed. I want them transported into the future where technology they couldn't imagine unfolds around them. I want them to have a great time. And then when I close the book, I want them to like kind of sigh and be like, man, I wish I could go back there. Like, man, I wish I could actually be there because that is what they carry with them. Every time they close that book and they close a new world, they close a new future or what have you, every time they finish, they take a piece of that world with them and you never know where they're going to to take it, right? They could take it to their own stories that they write. They could take it into their own careers that they want to be, right? Books, fiction especially, really can be inspiring. And so if you can close this book and be like, I'd love to develop my own video game like that. Or I'd love to invent a skateboard made out of a light beam. I'd love to have my own bionic lioness as a friend who can we can trade insults with. If they are inspired in the slightest bit and their life trajectory is altered by the most infinitesimal of amounts, I think <laughs> that is a success for all of us. You're really activating the creative imagination here. <laughs> what a great summer read. Now, could you read an excerpt aloud for us? Absolutely. Just a little bit of a preface here. This is a a sequel. So, you know, we kind of jumped straight into not exactly where we left off, but just to set up the scene a little bit, our intrepid young hero, Prince Yared, uh, finds himself dangling upside down in basically a holographic gymnasium and is waiting for rescue. Unfortunately, the object that comes to rescue him is not who he thought it would be. Salam, my prince, a cheerful voice said behind me. I sighed. Maybe being rescued was overrated. About time, Doombot. A silver pyramid-shaped bot buzzed into my upside-down view. 
Gold lines swept diagonally down and around its surface, and the faint blue glow of its anti-grav thrusters gave it a majestic look. Too bad it was just a glorified snitch. I'm glad the Azad sent me to you, Doombot said. I named my rear that as a joke, but since I always happened to get in trouble whenever it popped up, the name stuck. According to my logs, it appears you have avoided my carefully laid schedule for today's event. I am here to rectify that. Can't help you there, Doombot. I'm super busy. Doombot bobbed in the air and waited. Silence fell. I folded my arms and tried to whistle, but have you ever tried to whistle upside down? It's impossible. Just a few spluttering raspberries and a glob of drool. And you never want to drool while upside down. After several seconds passed, Doombot spun in a circle. Are you still... Still busy, I said, wiping my face. My friend should be here any minute. Ah! If you are referring to the nearest Machinatai recruit, the Ibis, I nodded, and her trainer, Fatima too, and your guardian, Besa, yep, those are the friends. They'll be here any minute now. Practice, you know. They're not coming. The royal trials are coming up soon and trials will be the... Wait, what? I glared at Doombot. What do you mean they're not coming? We've got practice. And I was up until morning programming this desert environment. The helper bot spun on its axis again. The human friends, as you like to call them, have an assembly they're attending. Your lioness is being refit for close quarters protection, which leaves you, your highness. And as your schedule clearly says, this time was reserved for speech rehearsal. I stared at it in confusion. For the upcoming intergalactic union reception? Doombot said helpfully. Still nothing. You have to give a speech about Axum's mission to find the missing modules. My eyes widened. Oh, that. I, I, I thought that was, like, you know, optional. I'm afraid not, my prince. You will be required to stand in front of thousands of ambassadors, millions more watching via Holofeed, and deliver a perfect speech that will surely be replayed around the galaxy far into the future. History will be made when you address the IU. Now then, let's just go over the... Wait, what are you doing, my prince? Look, I'm not afraid to admit I panicked here, but do you blame me? They wanted me to give a speech to people. You send a princely message to the Nexus one time in order to stop a rampaging monster, and all of a sudden they make a figurehead out of you. Well, not this kid. I unclip the harness. I don't do speeches. Nope, no sirree, but I'm out. If anyone needs me, I'll be under my bed. But my prince, later Doombot, I called as the last snap unbuckled. And I began to fall six stories to the floor below. And that's Ooh. where we'll end. Wow, that is amazing and Quite hilarious. I did not want to laugh through this. <laughs> so, so good. When did you first know you were a writer? And I'm wondering, too, what drew you to write for young people? Gosh, you're a natural. Well, to answer the second question yeah. first, it is my immaturity. I think that is what makes me such an I, I gravitate most towards writing for the younger audience, the middle grade audience. I find that age range is great because you, there is still a little a little bit of innocence from childhood right but you also are aware you're you're growing more aware of the world around you so you have this itch to explore so you know enough 
to want to go out and seek and explore and find things, but you don't know enough to realize that things can be dangerous. And so you're like this gung-ho, extremely brave, slightly naive character, which if you think about it, it's pretty much every middle grade protagonist. <laughs> For sure. And when did you start writing? I mean, I've been writing since I was in the, the third grade. But something that I always tell uh, students when I go on school visits is that you can be a writer with an audience or a readership of one, one person, that person being yourself, right? You don't have to let other people read your work in order to be a writer. And so for many years, a couple of decades, I only wrote for myself. It's not until within this past decade, maybe six or seven years ago, that I started writing with the intention of letting other people read it. And that's just because I got encouragement to do so. So you can write for yourself. You know, you can write with the intention of not letting anyone else read. You're still a writer if you do that. What benefit do you think kids derive from reading over the summer, especially a book like this that they can choose for themselves? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head right there at the end of your at the question, it's the fact that they can choose these books for themselves, right? There's no assigned reading. There's no mandatory assignments. You know, no one is telling you what to read. You are free and you finally have the time to read what you want to read uninterrupted. For myself, the summer was filled with trips to the library, the local library and the local bookstore. And I would stagger out of there with my arms full of books knowing that save for the brief interruption of eating and sleeping, I could read to my heart's content, right? I would take books with me. I would go to the playground. I'd go to the basketball court. Me and my brothers, we shoot hoops. We take a break. I'd sit down and pop open the book because who says you can't do two good things at once, right? So summer reading, it's just, it's like at the beginning and at the end and in the middle, you can fill it with as many adventures as you can stuff into your brain. And I think that's a wonderful, wonderful thing to try to do. Well said. Oh, my gosh, Kwame, this is great. You answered my final question. So I think we're all good unless you have anything you'd like to add. I do. I do want to add one thing. I don't know if it'll if it'll make the cut, but I think that just continuing with the the, the topic of summer reading. I encourage everyone to try and pick up a book that you wouldn't ordinarily think to, right? Like if you're like, oh, you know what? Uh, I really like science fiction or I really like comedy. Pick up a, you know, a fantasy, right? Or if you're like, oh, I love reading mysteries. You know what? Go, go yeah, pick up a, a romance or something for everyone. Like do something unexpected this summer. Because you never know, you might open up a whole new wing of the library that you never thought about going into and find your next favorite author. Now, here is author Tracy West. Hi, Tracy. Welcome to the program. Hi, Suzanne. I'm so happy to be here today. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your creativity with our young readers. So first, I would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about the book you'll be sharing with readers this summer, or one of the books. Let me say one of the books. Yes, because uh, I'm fortunate enough to be sharing two books. One is the first book of my series, Dragon Masters. And the other is a new, uh, a new series that I'm writing with Kyla May called The Underdogs. 
And some of you might know Kyla May from the wonderful Diary of a Pug book series from Scholastic Branches. And Kyla is just the best at illustrating dogs and illustrating dogs doing just so many funny, amazing, hilarious things. And so I was asked to collaborate with Kyla. And The Underdogs is about four friends, Nova, Duke, Harley, and Peanut, who all live in a town called Barksdale, where every dog is a blue winning best in show dog, except for Nova, Harley, Duke, and Peanut. And so the stories are all about how these four friends try to figure out how they fit in in a place where everybody is always the best. And the books also sort of explore what it, what does it really mean to be the best? But mostly I just try to make the books as funny as possible. Could you read an excerpt of The Underdogs for us? And if it's from the middle, of course, set the stage for our listeners. Absolutely. So the underdogs go to Barksdale Academy and each year they must compete in a series of tests called the K-9 exams. And so book number one, the underdogs basically just opens up with the four friends. Nova has arranged for them to practice for their first K-9 exam, which is the agility exam. And I just want to say that there are excellent audiobooks out for the underdogs with voice actors who do a wonderful <laughs> job. And so I'm going to do my best, but I do recommend listening to the voice actors because they're amazing. Are you ready to practice? Nova asked. Ready, her friends cried. Nova grinned. Good. Now, on your bark. Get set. Squirrel! Harley raced off toward the trees. Nova stopped her stopwatch. Harley, come back! Harley skidded to a stop. Whoops, sorry, Nova. She ran back to the starting line. Let's try this again, team comeback, Nova said. On your bark. Get set. Wait, Duke cried. I think I hear a bear. That's not a bear, it's a lawnmower, Nova told him. Are you sure, Duke asked. That sounds like the growl of a bear. A big, scary bear with sharp claws. I'm sure, Nova said. Let's try again. On your bark. Get set. Excuse me, Peanut piped up, raising his paw. But how exactly does this work? When you say on your bark, does that mean we bark before we take off? No, Nova said. I'm the one who barks. I'll say on your bark, get set, and then I'll bark. And that's when you all start the agility course. <laughs> this is great. Oh, my gosh. Kids are going to love this. What drew you to writing for kids other than this immense talent? <laughs> I have this vivid memory of reading a book on my own for the very first time. And that book was Go Dog Go by P.D. Eastman. And I remember getting to the end of the, you know, I, had, I, had, I knew the ending because it had been read to me by my, my mom and my grandma. But when I got to the end of the book and I finished it by myself, it was just something kind of exploded inside of me, right? And I thought, wow, reading is 
fantastic. It's the best thing in the whole world. And when I was in second grade, my teacher, Mrs. Lukowski, brought an author into the classroom, Leonard Kessler, the author of Mr. Pine's Purple House. And he talked to us about what it was like to be an author. And something clicked. I thought, wow, here's a real human person who who is writing children's books. And maybe that's something I can do. And even as I sort of grew and evolved as a reader, I was always still drawn to children's fiction. And it's it's a bit hard to describe why, but I just I just feel like children's fiction is frankly, it was kind of I always just found it to be a lot more fun <laughs> and allowed me to escape to amazing places. And so I I was pretty focused on um becoming a children's book author for most of my life. What benefits do you think kids derive from reading over the summer, especially a book that they choose for themselves? This topic is something that is so important to me and close to my heart because uh, growing up, I lived in a, a small town, a suburb of New York City, where I could walk to the public library by myself. And that is how I spent my summers. I wasn't in a I wasn't in a camp. I didn't go to camp. I didn't have any programs, but I went to the library and my librarian, Mrs. Bishop, would she knew what books I would like, or sometimes she would kind of challenge me to try a book. I remember she's the one who got me to read how to read fried worms, right? Which I didn't think I would like that. And then I ended up loving it. I would get as many books as literally as I could carry. (laughs) and take them home and read them. And that was how I spent my summer. And I, it just brought me so much joy and happiness. I live, I don't live in a suburban community anymore. I live in a rural community where kids can't really just walk even to the library. And it's so hard for rural kids to to get access to books or to get access to a place where they can browse books and look for something that inspires them. A few years ago, I kind of joined forces with my local Rotary Club to start a summer reading program. And all the libraries have them, but um, we did something a little different. We said, well, we're going to give you a free book if you if you sign up and we'll, we'll oh. drop it off at your door. <laughs> and so, so we'll drive like some of us drive an hour or an hour and a half just to drop a book off to a kid. And it's not, it's maybe not the most practical <laughs> way to do it, but um, it's wonderful. And we have great participation. I can't imagine a more rewarding experience. That's just so great to give a child a book that they can have and and keep. It's wonderful. It's a great feeling. And I, I sort of put myself in the position where I get to select the books and find out what, (laughs) what kids are interested in reading and that is so much fun. And it's the best thing when I get feedback from a parent or a kid. Oh, they love that book that you selected. And it's like, yes. Well, thank you, Tracy. Oh, you're welcome. So good seeing you. Now, here is author Lauren Tarshis. Hi, Lauren. Welcome to the program. Hi, Suzanne. Great to be here as always. Yay. So tell us about the book or books you'll be sharing with young readers this summer. Well, I have so many to share, Suzanne. Where do I begin? I have 20, I just finished my 22nd I Survive book. And then there are four graphic novels out. 
there are four true stories books out. So I always tell kids that I'm so happy that I've been doing this series so long because I do still love doing it. And I really love the fact that whatever a reader is interested in, some kids are fascinated by science and weather. Others are just like obsessed with volcanoes. Others really want to explore ancient Rome and look at the volcano Vesuvius that buried Pompeii and they get to explore archaeology through that. So I'm just excited for kids to be able to explore whatever they're interested in. And then maybe one of my books will inspire them to want to learn more. I love how you say that. You always want them to learn more. Do you have an excerpt from one of the books that you could read for us? Well, what I thought, I don't know how you feel about this, but I have this, the almost final draft of my 22nd book, which comes out at the very end of the summer. And I've been reading it to a lot of kids over the past probably two months because there's been time to make changes. So I'm just about to, we're just, we're sort of signing off on the final version. So maybe I'll just read a, a little bit of that, Suzanne. What do you think? Wonderful, Lauren. I'm here for it. Okay, good. So this is a, this was a really interesting story because it was a suggestion from a reader. I often get suggestions from I survived and also magazine readers, Scholastic Magazine's plus readers like StoryWorks and Scholastic News. Kids have such, um, they're always keeping their eyes open and I have never, I've never gone wrong when I follow their lead. So I got an email from a, from a reader last year saying, Lauren, you've never written about an avalanche. So I said, (laughs) is that possible? Wait a minute. And it was true. So I learned that there was a really fascinating episode that happened in, tw- in 1910 in the Cascade Mountains of Washington, which are like not as famous as the Rockies or the Smokies or the Appalachians, but I think they're the coolest and fiercest because they have, I think, 14 volcanoes in them. They go from Washington State down through Northern California. And they also get the Northern Cascades get more snow than anywhere on the planet, which I did not know. So this event that happened in 1910 happened on um, where a train was crossing the Cascades, a passenger train with 55 people on it, and also a mail train, like a was sort of like an Amazon, a train that was a little bit like today what Amazon Prime is. This was a train that was bringing mail and packages really quickly to people in the West. So these two trains got stranded in a blizzard in the middle of nowhere. Six days, the snow poured down. The trains were buried. Food ran low. People were freezing. You can only imagine how those trains smelled. But that wasn't even the worst part. The worst part was that an enormous avalanche came crashing down and knocked both trains off a cliff. And it is called the Great Wellington Avalanche. And it is to this day the deadliest avalanche in American history. And it's also a train disaster that really changed the way we think about traveling through the mountains. After that, train lines began to build more tunnels and train sheds, which are like these roofs over um, tracks to keep people safe. So I always also like when kids can look at an event that happened hundred, you know, hundred or more years ago and make a connection to our lives today. So many of the lessons that we've learned from the past help keep us safer. So should I read a little of chapter one? Go for it. 
And remember, Suzanne, these are cliffhanger beginnings. So what I do, it's not the beginning of the story. This is hopefully a very exciting scene that I go in, I rewrite. And my goal is hopefully to hook a reader's. And so they will want to read even while they're at the beach this summer or while they're waiting for their hot dogs on the grill that they'll be reading either but, one of my books or another. But one. maybe not on a train ride. Definitely not <laughs> on a train. Although I did work on this on a train and I was looking around like, oh my goodness. So I'll just read a little bit of it, but this will give you a sense so this is chapter one. It's Tuesday, March 1st, 1910. It's 1.40 in the morning, and we're in Wellington, Washington, which was a tiny little railroad town, hundreds of miles from anything. The first line is a big sound effect. So imagine, roar! The ear-splitting explosion shook the ground. 11-year-old Janie Pryor swung her head around and stared in horror. The mountain above her seemed to have shattered apart. A massive wave of icy snow is crashing down, an avalanche. For the past six days, Janie had been stuck in this stormy wilderness. A fierce blizzard had stopped the train she'd been riding, trapping her and dozens of others. Day after day, snow gushed from the sky. Icy winds howled. The snow blocked the tracks and practically buried the train. It covered the mountain until even the tops of the trees disappeared. And now Janie was standing outside in the night. Before her eyes, snow had broken loose from the side of the mountain. The thick white blanket had turned into a churning wave. It sped down the mountain, destroying everything in its path. Crash! Trees shattered to bits. Boom! Boulders broke loose from the earth. With every second, the killer wave grew bigger, heavier, deadlier. The snow mixing with wood and rocks and great hunks of dirt. Faster and faster it moved. It was heading right for Janie and the train with men, women, and children inside. They were all fast asleep. They had no idea what was coming. Wake up, Janie screamed. Avalanche. Oh, my gosh, Lauren. I didn't want to scare you, Suzanne. <laughs> you... I might have to come there and, and, and hold your hand while you take the subway home tonight. <laughs> I am so excited and how wonderful that you shared this new book with us. It's what a... What a story. And I, I had no idea. I know. I didn't either. I didn't either. There's just so many, so many stories that were, and this was a story that was on the front page of every newspaper all around the country and around the world for weeks and months. And, and, and of course, it's a, a story that very few people have remember. So I'm always shocked by that. When you were doing the research, is there anything that really stood out to you like that was kind of shocking or wow? I well, I was in a state of constant shock when I was doing yeah, this research yeah. because I didn't know that there was such a dark side to the building of the railroads. Of course, we were so, it was an incredible accomplishment to suddenly connect the country and enable people to move and, and travel and have businesses and journeys that used to take six months across the country now took a week and places that really you could never get to easily like Seattle you know, across the Cascade Mountains suddenly were, you know, an overnight trip, a simple overnight trip on a train. But the railroads, of course, were built mostly by people in the South who were enslaved. And in the West, they were built by Chinese immigrants and Italian immigrants and Japanese people who were treated really hatefully. Many, many thousands died in accidents and, um, and were not 
were just treated extremely poorly by their by their bosses. And even after the trains were built, it was super dangerous. Like if you look in the New York, you look at any newspaper from 1860 to 1920, I guarantee you almost every day there was some grisly accident of a train flying off a bridge or careening down a mountain or slamming into a, another train. So it was. it's interesting to see that so many, like anything else, and of course there's a lot to celebrate about that accomplishment, but also it's, I think, important to remember sometimes there was a high cost for the progress. Absolutely. And when we think about summer reading, Lauren, I wondered, you've thought about this a lot, what particular benefits do kids derive from reading over the summer, especially a book that they choose for themselves? I'm understanding more and more because I think we're, we're really delving into the science of reading more and understanding how important it is for kids to read widely, especially nonfiction, historical fiction, even books of facts it doesn't have to be the heaviest, scary stories or really thick history books, but magazine articles, because all of the um, knowledge that kids kind of slurp up while they're even reading a book about a shark or they're reading a book about some fascinating, their favorite baseball player, where this baseball team is, all that knowledge gets into their minds. And that background knowledge is so important in helping them become strong readers. So I think here at Scholastic, we're just, we're understanding more and more the link between reading more, picking up more vocabulary and kids feeling more, you know, being able to be more confident and, and strong readers. So of course, I think it's great just because they learn a ton. And I think the more things kids are interested in, the more interesting life is. But there's also just a great, really more and more understanding about that, that connection. Uh, I, I remember I had a kid reporter who once said, the more I know, the more I want to know. That's a, that's, that's a good one. That is, that's true. It has stayed with me. So do you have any, I wondered if you had a favorite memory of your own childhood of reading that you would share with our listeners? Well, I always tell kids, I mean, I've shared my story of reading with most, with many kids and every kid I've met, which is that I didn't, I was not a reader as a child. I had some big reading struggles, but I do have a wonderful memory of my father reading Winnie the Pooh. (laughs) to my brother and me. My father played piano in a bar and restaurant in a fancy town in the Hamptons. And in exchange, he didn't get paid, but we were able to live in this. It was a pretty dumpy little house, but it was on the beach. (laughs) And so that summer was a very, I still remember it. I think I was maybe eight or nine years old. And that summer, my dad would work at night and he would sleep late. And then in the, then he would, you know, we sat under this big tree kind of near at the edge of the beach, reading us Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> oh, so that perfect. was a big memory. <laughs> I love that. Well, this has been great, Lauren. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, here is Shane Garver from Save the Children. Hi, Shane. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I wondered, what are some of your earliest memories of reading? You know, so I had, I had a, my background is I had a a bit of a rough childhood. I actually started school late. And so it was really, 
uh, an investment of my first grade teacher. I started school after Christmas break, first grade year. Didn't know the first thing about reading. And it was really that extra support of Mrs. Keefe, who took time uh, with me to work on my reading skills, help catch me up to my classmates and lay that foundation to enable me to be successful later in life. It turned out graduating valedictorian of both my high school and college class. But it was that early literacy foundation and just that special care of that caring adult that enabled me to uh, follow that path. That is great. That is great. So tell us about your role at Save the Children and how it's expanding early childhood education in the U.S. So in Save the Children, we work in 300 high poverty rural communities throughout the United States. These are communities where there's that limited access to resources, limited summer camps and other learning opportunities. We, uh, as part of our work in the U.S., we do a home visiting program. And when we walk into the homes, especially for the first time, it's not uncommon at all to validate that research statistic that's out there that says 60% of low-income homes don't have a single age-appropriate children's book in the home. And that is the reality that we see day in and day out at Save the Children. And so it's something that we are actively working to combat with wonderful partners like Scholastic to really build home libraries and access to literacy resources throughout the community for kids and families. So tell us a little bit more about that partnership with Scholastic and how you're providing books in this summer reading program. Scholastic is one of our, our biggest and most longstanding uh, donors. We're, it's such an honor to be a recipient of their give back program. Uh, this summer, Scholastic is donating 100,000 books to save the children for us to distribute throughout, again, these high poverty rural communities where kids wouldn't have access to these learning materials and books otherwise. At the end of the summer, what do you hope that Scholastic and Save the Children will have achieved? You know, we're at a really interesting time in our country as schools are rolling up their sleeves day in and day out to help kiddos uh, navigate through the tumultuous few years that they've been through here. And we see this summer as a critical foundation uh, to either catch up and move ahead or perhaps have, you know, the achievement gap widen. That's why it's critical that Scholastic is, is leaning in with Save the Children, getting books into the hands of kids, again, who wouldn't have access to these otherwise, and really helping spark a joy of reading throughout the summertime. One of the things that's so wonderful about the donation is that it's not just the books themselves, but it's books that are of interest and on level for the, the students who will be reading them. As I've worked across the country in my role at Save the Children, it's not uncommon for me to walk into school libraries in some of these communities where I really just want to take all of the books and put them up on eBay and sell them as antiques because there are books on the library shelves where we have yet to land on the moon. They're that old. It is so powerful and so meaningful to be able to go into a community thanks to the support from Scholastic and hand kids a new book that is about a topic that is of interest to them, that is bright and shiny and something of their very own. These are kids with few possessions in the world. And so when you can equip them with books as a tool that not only expands their knowledge, but gives them a sense of pride, that's just such a win-win that Scholastic is helping to provide. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we let you go? This has been extremely helpful. 
for your listeners, there's a key way that they can help and get engaged right alongside the kiddos in our communities. If they join into, if they go to scholastic.com slash summer and be a part of unlocking uh, books for kiddos across the country. I know my own kids. I've got a kindergartner and a third grader who love going to the site, uh, playing a part of the games and engaging all summer long in meaningful activities. And giving back through doing that, unlocking these books and the donation for kids. If folks would like to learn more about Save the Children and our work, I'd encourage them to go to savethechildren.org to hear more about what we're doing across the U.S. My great thanks again to all of the guests who joined me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about the Scholastic Summer Reading Program and Home Base, our digital destination for young readers, check the show notes or go to scholastic.com slash podcast. Our summer reading program will be up and running through August 19. Special thanks to producer Bridget Benjamin, associate producer Constance Gibbs, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberle. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.